welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast, getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio. Hi everyone and welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly and I am the editor at large at Sports Pro and I am very happy to be joined once again by Sports Pro magazine editor Mike Long. Hi Mike. Hi Owen, how are you today? Very well Mike, very well. How are you? I am good. We've uh, we've we're we're, we're going to be signing off issue 104 of Sports Pro imminently. So that's uh, that's a load off the shoulders. So mm. it's a, it's a good day. Yeah, thank you for the the blow by blow updates over the last few weeks of of the progress um of Sports Pro's flagship. Um speaking of big projects Mike, have you heard the news? What's that? Owen? So much news this week. Olympic circles. Well, they say that one of the most stressful things you can do other than helm a print publication is move house the international Mm. olympic committee are moving house on the 23rd of june which happens to be olympic day you know it seems to get earlier every year um and frankly i feel like it's just too commercial but that's a conversation for another time but yeah the 125th anniversary of the creation of the ioc will also be the inauguration of a new olympic house in lausanne bringing together all the various people working on uh, on different Olympic projects across the city. The Olympic house that's already there is going to be repurposed as a kind of extension of the museum, I think. But yeah, that's exciting. I'm excited. Are you excited? So excited. So excited. That's that's great. So this is going to offer them all kinds of operational efficiencies and things like that, which is... Apparently uh, so. Well, let's, let's look at some of the blurbs. So developed by Danish architecture firm 3XN, Olympic house will allow the IOC to bring together its staff 500 employees currently spread across Lausanne in four locations. That's good going because Lausanne is not that big. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's going to be, you know, it's met enhanced sustainability standards and mm. all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so whatever the future of the Olympic movement, they're going to have a new, a shiny new building to decide on it in. Um, more Olympic news. Seoul is going to be bidding for the 2032 Olympic Games uh, with a little bit of help from Pyongyang, a united Korean bid for the 2032 Olympics. It's, it's, that's, it's one thing, you know, unifying and, and uniting to enter teams into these kinds of competitions, but hosting it, Owen, hosting an event like the Olympic Games across that border in particular, how's that going to work? I feel like they are banking on having a long time to work that out. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a hell of a shout. And there's a couple of... Uh, couple of people have pointed out over the last few hours on the socials it might well be that thomas Bach's last act as ioc president is to name the host of the 2032 olympics yeah. and it might be something that appeals to um uh to to announce that united korean bid as, as being successful but it's i'm gonna say optimistic at this point but hey if it works out then we know that you know the world of 2032 at least in korea will be a a much better place but we live right now in the world of 2019 and in that world mike what are some of the things that have been going on in the sports industry this week that have caught your eye well it's all about as always as so often we are you know find ourselves talking about on this podcast in ott isn't it it's there's there's uh, movements being made let's say developments premier league and uefa the latest uh, to be linked to new netflix style streaming services you know ott uh, subscription platforms, um, mm. UEFA, they certainly their plans certainly sound 
a fair bit more concrete, let's say. Uh, they're planning to launch in the next six months, I believe. And uh, Alexander Cheferin, who uh, fresh off his re-election for a new four-year term as UEFA president, uh, you know, essentially announcing it, saying that a revolution is underway and this is all part of it, essentially. So as part of their plans, I think, uh, is it women's and youth matches will be factored yeah. this offering initially, along with a load of additional content, archive footage and behind the scenes footage and things like that, uh, with presumably a view once their you know, major contracts come up for renewal and things at, uh, in 2021. Uh, for this, some of their kind of flagship men's competitions that mm. some of those will be factored in as well. So interesting, interesting move, Owen. Yeah, I think the, the Premier League conversation certainly seems to be a bit more in the realms of theoretical at this point mm. in time. Of course, the Premier League without a chief executive at the current time um, reports that they are looking to the US potentially and, and uh, you know, in search of the appropriate candidate for UEFA. I mean, it's something that makes some sense they've got they've got lots of football basically um lots of as you say youth games and and women's games that don't get broad distribution in every market and even if you look at qualifiers and uh and 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 so on and nations league games there will be markets where they are broadly distributed by free-to-air channels which you know opens up the possibility you would think for uh, more of a partnership perhaps some some games shown on this OTT service and some games shown on on free-to-air services. As you say, that will be something for UEFA and CAA 11, uh, who are their agency for national team competitions, to think about um, when those those rights come back onto the market. And obviously, um, you know, as in to kind of build on your point, it's uh, there's been some discussion around you know, how this affects those major markets, I suppose, in which they have these, you know, have pay TV deals. In, you know, the UK, for example, a deal with a big lucrative deal with BT Sports. How the, a launch of a service like this would uh, impact upon upon those those relationships in mm. those markets, uh, as you know, was the discussion around Formula One, for example. Yeah, um, yeah. How how do you see that kind of playing out, and how, you know? What impact does this platform or a product of this type have on on those contract negotiations and partnerships moving forward? I guess it really depends on what the ambition for it is. If it's mm. if it's meant to be a commercial proposition, then in the way that F1 TV is, then I guess it is. You know that some of those conversations are going to become a bit more delicate, but it's not unheard of that you have a rights holder going to market. If you just look at what the US sports leagues do, for example, it's not unheard of that you have a rights holder going to market with a with a broadcast platform and then has to deal with its partners in other negotiations. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at what the PGA Tour is doing, where they're going to have golf TV, obviously operating in lots of markets where Discovery will go back and sell rights again. UEFA will, I guess, have some pretty clear delineation between what's on that platform, what's appropriate the kind of premium pay TV stuff and what's not. I mean, you know, I would be surprised if the Champions League found its way on there or the Europa League, which, as you say, are both covered by BT Sport here and tend to be the kind of chunkier uh, half of, of UEFA's output. Mm. Um, the national team stuff, I think England games, it's England games and everything else, actually, in, in the Nations League and qualifiers, I think, now on uh, on Sky 
yeah it makes sense as a kind of development platform initially and then exactly yeah they'll, I think... they'll see how it see how it all goes they've they're in the advantageous position of having two companies that basically just sell uefa rights in in caa 11 and um and team marketing on the club side yeah. so they can get a pretty good sense of, of what the market's going to look like and as, as you said i suppose you know um there's the commercial considerations but there's the the community building the the kind of ecosystem development around uefa properties really as, as well as that in terms of tying together raising the profile of women's and, and youth soccer mm. housing it all in one one place uh data gathering everything else that goes into an ott platform of this type it's not yeah. just streaming live live video is it so um yeah obviously they see see opportunities on that front as well yeah and it, it could be a really powerful tool for the commercial development of, of women's soccer um particularly outside the the major mm. major territories england germany france where soccer generally is very commercially powerful but where the women's game is, is perhaps a step ahead of where it is in, in some other places and, and in terms of you know at least financially yeah well i mean we'll be hearing more from uefa i know that steve impey has a an interview with Guy Laurent Epstein, um, which is in that much discussed new issue of Sports Pro. Um, yeah. And we're also going to be hearing a bit from Rob Harris from the AP uh, in the second half on the adventures of Alexander Chefferin and Gianni Infantino, both of whom, um, as you briefly alluded to there, uh, extended their terms at the head of UEFA and FIFA, respectively, um, and both of whom will have yeah lots of... Uh, Lots of exciting discussions about the future of world football in the next few months, I am sure. Um, speaking of big rights holders and OTT, we, we glossed over it very quickly there, but Formula One, being sports, has withdrawn from negotiations. Is it have they withdrawn altogether, Mike? Is it what they've, they've certainly stepped back from yeah. <clears throat> negotiations on uh, on taking F1 in the Middle East over the next few years? Yeah, I mean they've been they've been threatening this kind of move for for some time since you know throughout this uh, BLQ. Uh, disputes and the kind of Saudi standoff, this whole situation. Uh, I think they've said that they, you know, uh, will be paying less for rights if you know they don't see meaningful action from rights holders. And they yeah. uh, they certainly yeah threatened it, but they've now said you know there's going to be a, a a pretty robust screening process now for whatever rights they do invest in. Uh, they're going to ensure those rights holders are taking meaningful action. They are taking measures to stamp out this kind of activity um and it seems formula one is is finding that out the hard way it's interesting to read i think you know this it's not an insignificant portion of f1 revenues that is you know comes from being i think it's uh was it seven or eight percent of their of their annual turnover yeah so you know that's that's going to certainly um turn a few heads in mm. within formula one and the onus is on them now i suppose and, and other rights holders to to listen to what Bian has been saying time and time again, including in in Sports Pro, yeah, threatening this kind of uh, action, and and they're not the only ones as well. There's other broadcasters and their eleven sports and their leadership have said the same thing. Uh, it's time to to stamp this kind of uh, piracy out and mm. take a stand. So um, yeah, I mean, what, what would what would Formula One's options be just out of interest in? The Middle East and North Africa, which is obviously being sports territory. Um, so the, the other big player in that region would be OSN. Mm. Um, so they could simply go elsewhere. They've obviously got their F1 they, TV service. 
yeah they can go elsewhere but the the biggest issue with being being so public in their disavowal of of these rights is um you know what it does for competition and the perception of competition um yeah it's very difficult to to drive rights up if you know that there is one of the most significant players in that in that region out of the game yeah and you know you you could imagine that they will ramp up efforts on the f1 tv side but i mean yeah as a, as a business it's a it's a long way behind the international rights business for formula one as it as it is for pretty much everybody so it's going to be a, a, a pretty significant challenge for them um it's coming you know just to to kind of confine the the conversation to formula one for a minute it's coming at a, a really challenging time for the series more generally people are beginning now to break ranks a little bit in in terms of how uh, within the sport they're discussing mm. liberty's ownership yeah doesn't have the grand prix promoters speaking out in kind of opposition to the or criticizing liberty's um direction i suppose or the lack of direction for formula one mm. um since liberty took over uh obviously so many different stakeholders and parties to appease within that Formula One ecosystem, and there's you know the Concord Agreement coming up, or yeah. talk talks over that as well. So um, yeah, yeah. It, it's a different and, activity. As is so often the case in Formula One, it's the Concord Agreement or the kind of whatever binding agreement that's fashioned between the teams that's the real point of contention. And and there's a lot of jockeying that goes on around you know eking out whatever bit of leverage you can get ahead of that and so anything that destabilizes the series operator maybe again the perception would be that they'd be willing to give a little bit more ground um there's also still you know people operating with uh their tuppence to chuck in in, in favor of, of the previous owner and all the rest of it is you know there's there's a there's a lot of, of political dimension to this um i think the other thing is that you know and we we got the sense through 2018 but there is an onus on on liberty now to to stick the landing they've tried a lot of stuff in the last couple of years some of it was long overdue some of it is new and and unexpected and you know it's a it's a fairly fairly esoteric community mm-hmm. of people who some of whom maybe don't like being told to do things different yeah. so they've they've got that to contend with as well all of which leads to um, to a shameless plug, Mike, because Sean Bratch is the managing director of commercial operations at Formula One. Uh, he's going to be appearing at Sports Pro Live um, in a few weeks' time, a couple of months' time, 30th of April and 1st of May in London. Um, obviously, our, our big event of the year. Yeah, some some interesting names that he'll be joining from Cricket World Cup and World Rugby and Twitter and um, Intel and all the rest so keep an eye out for that Keith Pelly from the European Tour he's he's going to be there ah, um, mm, he's back he's going to be talking about media and all that stuff so that all of that conversation around yeah the global media picture I think will yeah. will recur a fair number of times uh, yeah. at that just, event and in the weeks beforehand yeah just to tie this back to to being because I found the found the figures they reported who paid 
pay between 30 and 40 million a year for their for their rights mm. um, since they came in in 2014 uh, represents roughly seven percent of the series estimated broadcast income which is uh, as I say not in substantial amount um, but Formula One a spokesperson for Formula One has um, reportedly uh, told Bloomberg that they are in late stages of uh, finalising an agreement with a new broadcast partner in Middle East and North Africa. So we'll wait and see on that front. But certainly we haven't heard the last of, uh, of this whole issue and certainly haven't heard the last of Bean's grievances, I imagine, whilst the yeah. piracy continues. Yeah, I'm sure we haven't. And worth remembering as well that the Middle East is a pretty significant market for, for Formula One in terms of where some of the sponsors come from for, for the series and, and for teams um, uh, and where they want to sell to. And of course, it's where the last race of the year takes place Yeah. Um, in, in the UAE, not in Qatar. But yeah, it's um, it'll be interesting to see where, where this story goes in, in both dimensions. We've seen a, a series of executives from Formula One kind of speaking out on the record about some of the consternation that's been voiced and either playing it down or, or confronting it directly, depending on, on what the issue is. And we, yeah, I, I think on the other side of this, as you say, that particularly as rights holders get more involved in media distribution themselves, the expectation on them to do a bit more about piracy and not just kind of address it as, a, a, as a, an ethereal thing that's going to become more of a factor um bit more on on ott mike the kind of archetypal ott proposition to zone those guys this isn't coming from them but Mm. those guys apparently they've got a lot planned yeah interestingly yeah it's not coming from them as we say it's coming from the former MP and Silver Chief, Chief Executive Jochen Losch, who has reportedly, or he said on stage at the Spobiz conference in Dusseldorf uh, recently, that they are armed with a war chest of 2.5 billion to spend on global media rights this year. Mm. So, what are they going to spend it on? Obviously, they've got, they recently launched in the US, they're launching in Spain. If they haven't already, it's probably imminent. I think they have already, actually, in Spain, haven't they? And mm. they're launching in Brazil. So, bit of premium sports more premium sport on the on the uh in the crosshairs i think for the zone i think we can safely say i think we can i think uh, we can um i don't know if that 2.5 billion i mean this is Jochen Losch saying that he's heard this directly from someone at design in right. confidence i hope not sure um yeah if i had an all-purpose list of uh available rights in front of me then i'd probably make a few stabs at what that might be that they'd spend it on but I don't and I also can't think of anything funny to say so from my perspective we're going to have to leave that speculation to one side can you think of anything that they might they might have a go at well I think no not really I mean Brazil is an interesting you'd think statement rights might be one thing for them to have a go at but Champions League I don't know yeah it's an interesting one it's one that they you know they're they're certainly going all out there's a lot of investment behind them they've got money to uh money to spend building things up but yeah the other thing is whether that 2.5 billion is is you know is it is it new rights deals new rights outlays or is that their the entirety of their portfolio factored in for this year that's how much they're spending across all of their markets uh presumably losh wasn't uh um, wasn't told uh, yeah. the specific don't know 
don't know. But we're, we're just speculating on one line at this point. Yeah. Speaking of building things up, Mike, one of the biggest deals of the week and, and one of the most intriguing uh, AEG involved in a big, big merger. Yeah, it's certainly uh, a significant one in the venue management and operate, operating world. Definitive agreement to merge 50-50 joint venture that will manage how many facilities, Owen? Hundreds. So obviously we know, uh, we know a fair bit about uh, AEG in the facilities space. Certainly here in the UK and in, in London in particular, they, they own and operate the O2 Arena. Uh, they also have the Barclays Centre in Brooklyn, uh, Americans Airline, uh, American Airlines Arena in Miami. What's SMG specialising? Are they are they they're NFL stadiums? That's their that's the core of their business, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So Mercedes Benz, uh, sorry, the Mercedes Benz Superdome in New Orleans, U.S. Bank Stadium in Minnesota, uh, Soldier Field in Chicago. Um, so, yeah, they, they're very much at that scale of things. 310 facilities worldwide will come under the umbrella um, of, of this new unit, ASM Global. So, yeah, developments, eh? Developments in the world of, of buildings. Something, an interesting tidbit was um, just on that on that topic. Uh, the two Milan teams, you know them, AC Milan and Internazionale, they are talking about going to a, a smaller venue. Why is that, Owen? Bigger is not always better? I think that's pretty much, yeah, that's yeah. pretty much the, the argument, going for improved experience. I mean, the model is uh, is is right there in Italian soccer with um, yeah with Juventus. Uh, so is the Allian Stadium now? Is this presumably this isn't this wouldn't be downsizing the the existing San Zero? It'd be scrap that, build a new one, but make it smaller and more commercially viable, more more interesting from that perspective, and the hospitality offerings and the fan fan experience offerings and everything that goes into a, a modern stadium. That's their line of thinking, and obviously they, as you say, they've seen what likes of Juventus have done. Um, it's, I think it's an either or. I think it's whichever is most feasible. Um, but the idea is that the the capacity would come down to about 60,000. At the moment, it's 80,000. And it's definitely leaving behind this bigger is better kind yeah. of 90s mentality. Um, trying to find a stadium that works a little bit better for for modern needs. But um, yeah, one to watch. Um, right. I think we will we'll, we'll cap it there for part one. Lots of talk of moving house. But yeah, we'll move on to other topics right after this. Enjoying this Sports Pro podcast? Well, we're also the sports industry leader in print, digital and events. Head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features, news and interviews from the business of sport. Help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else. Get inside the industry with Sports Pro. Welcome back to the Sports Pro podcast. Uh, Mike, we obviously talked a bit about Formula One in the opening part. We're not going to talk much more about them, but I've just noticed that Sky Deutschland, the, uh, the German pay TV operator, they have returned to Formula One. They have completed a deal for uh, live races in Germany and Austria until the end of 2020. Yeah. So there you go. And what's prompted um, this though? And there was some talk of a bit of a, a consumer customer backlash when uh, Sky Deutschland announced, when was it, some time ago that they would uh, 
they weren't interested in non-exclusive rights once once Formula One had sold their free. Yeah, tour. yeah. Well, it was a corporate decision uh, to focus on exclusive rights because RTL also shows races on on free to air in Germany. Yeah. Um, but subscribers not that happy. Were they were they speaking with their wallets? Did they cancel subscriptions? Uh, presumably. Presumably they did. Presumably yeah. they did. Yeah. So there we go. Just. Uh, you know, swing, swings and roundabouts. Indeed. Chicanes and hairpins. Indeed. The world of Formula One. See, I, I saw that, Mike, on the Sports Pro website, just to effortlessly bring us on to stuff that's on the Sports Pro website. There's an interview here that you've done with uh, with Chris Park. Yes, once indeed. Once of Major League Baseball. Many mm. people may believe he's still of Major League Baseball, but he's not. He's moved on from his uh, head of international game role there to Gen G. Mm. What's he up yes. to there? He is the chief executive, Owen, relocating from New York to Los Angeles. He was obviously, for those who don't know, and not everyone will, admittedly, but he was a bit of a rising star of the Major League Baseball front office. He was uh, very much a kind of Manf- one of Rob Manfred's guys. Uh, he returned from Facebook in 2015, uh, having previously held roles at, with uh, MLB. Um, and had recently been fairly recently been promoted to executive vice president of product and marketing. And yeah, he's uh, he's jumped ship, hasn't he? Like the, a handful of executives have done from traditional sport into the world of esports and gaming. Mm. Gen G own a Overwatch League franchise, the Soul Dynasty. Uh, they compete in League of Legends and presumably a load of other games that I mm. know not of. Uh, yeah opportunity yeah. for them to become the Seoul and Pyongyang dynasty if, if that 2032 project comes off well yeah and if you know esports gets the Olympic billing that people like Genji oh, you know synergies yeah exactly so yeah anyway there's a Q&A on the uh, sportsforamedia.com with Chris Park he's talking about his new role the priorities and challenges for him uh, ahead and he also talks about his dream job growing up so do check that out sounds great also on the on the website, Sam Carp has found out from NBC Sports and Rory McElroy what the thinking is behind Golf Pass, which we discussed on this program last week. So Champions League is back this week, um, and Ajax are playing Real Madrid. Um, I think tonight is if you're if you're hearing this on the day of publication, it's it's Wednesday evening, mm. their first leg of their round of sixteen game. Um, yeah, I was there just before Christmas. Found out a bit about how they are using technology to kind of augment the um, the fantastic success, ex- historical success they've had in, in developing young players there. Um, very much on the upswing in terms of uh, in terms of academy products at Ajax. So yeah, hopefully that's worth the read. Uh, we've also got a roundtable with a few speakers from OTT Asia. Reminder: if you want to join us out in Singapore on the 27th and 28th of March to head to ottasia.sportspromedia.com because you've you've got, what, six, seven weeks? Yeah, uh, some good news, Mike, from the world of football. Hakim Al-Arabi, who we spoke about, I think, a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago, footballer playing out in Australia, a Bahraini refugee, had left the country after the government crackdown there of, of 2011. Interpol alert put out on him by the, the authorities in Bahrain. Uh, which shouldn't have been valid, but w- which was picked up by the authorities in Thailand, where he was on holiday. Um, fortunately, despite requests to extradite him back to Bahrain, where he would have faced God knows what kind of treatment, he has 
been released and he will be returning to Australia to his to his life there, which is good to know and uh, fantastic achievement and hard work, uh, which must be credited from Craig Foster, who's led that initiative and, and various other people, many, many other people who've been working alongside him. Um, so fair play to them, fair play to football authorities who spoke out on his behalf and, and good luck to Hakeem yeah. in turns, all of his future endeavours. Yeah, it turns out sport doesn't exist in a vacuum after all, Owen, and you can really can have an impact outside of your outside of your bubble. If you, Let's hope so. Yeah. Let's hope so. Yeah, in that world, talking of, of the world of football politics, we've, we've seen democracy in action in the last the last week. Well, we haven't really. We've seen uh, <laughs> um, unopposed uh, elections for or re-elections for FIFA president Gianni Infantino and UEFA president Alexander Cheferin. I think surprising nobody. There were there weren't really. Ramon Vega was the closest we got to any kind of challenge. So, uh, so the two of them will be in situ for a few years to come. Yeah. Obviously, this comes after a year in which the two of them have kind of almost set up as opposing forces in uh, in a in a, a contest for the future of world football. I've given that a really, really big yeah. I've really talked that up, but yeah, that's that's kind of what happened last year with the discussions over the FIFA Club World Cup and the expansions to that. Obviously, the the Nations Leagues formats emerging UEFA wanting to retain its status as kind of a commercial center of of the world game someone who can tell us quite a bit about the ins and outs of those two organizations the political state of world football and some of the head-to-heads that we can expect between FIFA and UEFA over the summer is Rob Harris who is the global football writer for the Associated Press Uh, Rob joined us on the line to talk about those matters and a little bit more and we'll be hearing from him in just a sec rob harris global football writer for the associated press uh sports journalism award nominated football writer for the um associated press welcome to the sports pro podcast Good to join you. Rob, last week we found out that Alexander Cheferin has been re-elected for another term as UEFA president um, over at FIFA. Gianni Infantino is going to be unopposed for his re-election this summer. Unexpected? Well, Infantino was in the room there in Rome last week as uh, Alexander Cheferin was re-elected. I mean, there was no real sense of opposition at all growing within Europe for Seferin and any sense he would be challenged. And given the fact he's only completing Michel Platini's term, he's not the full term himself, I mean, there's a certain um, reasonableness in the fact that he does get a full term. I think you know, if there had been a contested election, it would have stimulated a bit more debate. I mean, on the FIFA side, where nominations closed last week to be a candidate in the June elections, yeah, Infantino was the only candidate. Ramon Vega again tried to put his name in the frame, but you need 
five nominations from federations. And, you know, you might have thought there should have been some opposition from within UEFA because they've spent so much of the last year or so opposing a lot of Infantino's plans. But I think they're just going to continue fighting from the outside, not try to topple Infantino. No, it, it definitely appears. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels certainly the case with UEFA that, as you say, it's kind of a, a project that's barely got underway for Jeffrey. But why, why do you feel it was that they did step to one side as, as far as Infantino was concerned? Is, it, is there a sense that it wasn't worth staking somebody's reputation on that, I guess? Yeah, and the maths just isn't there, given how Infantino's conducted himself in his um, first term. He's been certainly gaining support or sort of sweeping up support across many of the continents and building up um, the funds to redistribute to members. So he's very much been in the blatter mold, basically promising more cash around the world and uh, almost presenting himself as the anti-European, European FIFA president, even though, of course, he is Swiss-Italian. And uh, it, it was unlikely there was a path to victory for anyone from Europe, uh, even though, you know, it will be the defining aspect of the next year still this ongoing uh, collision that FIFA and UEFA on over the plans to attempt to expand the club world cup and to introduce the new global nations league all these disputes obviously at the heart of UEFA's uh, concerns about where the money is actually coming from with Infantino saying he can guarantee that 25 billion dollars yeah I mean we'll, we'll get on to that in a sec just um looking Inside UEFA at first, I mean, obviously one of the eternal battles within European football is is between the club game and the international game. UEFA are, are kind of basking in the unexpected success of, of the Nations League um, and have Euro 2020 to look forward to next year. But they still have to contain the, the kind of commercial beast of um of club football and you know how they how they use the Champions League and and kind of try and stave off that threat of, of a, a potential breakaway that, that we saw uh, rearing its head again last year. Yeah, I mean the, the breakaway threats was existing in 2016 just before Sheffron was elected. In fact, he spoke out quite um, significantly against the deal that was done at the time, which led to these four automatic places in the Champions League for England, for Spain, and for Germany. And, uh, you know, since being elected, he's actually moderated his language, has actually become very uh, close to the European Club Association and nearly the UEFA and the Juventus president, who is head of the ECA. The, the danger in that is you risk uh, alienating the leagues and you might, you know, you sense some pushback from the leagues who obviously see that um, the clubs have a significant say within UEFA, but perhaps the leagues less so. And the, you heard from um, Christian Seifert, the Bundesliga chief executive, in a speech last month, uh, speaking out against anyone trying to encroach on weekends by putting competitions like the uh, Champions League in there. Um, Seifert obviously has an, an increased role now. The fact he has replaced Scudamore as head of the World Leagues Forum. So, you know, that's going to be one of the challenges going forward, particularly post-2024, when the next um, sort of cycle is in play in terms of do the clubs push for more uh, Champions League games on the weekend when they'll get more exposure around the world? And you know, the leagues are not only protecting their top flights, the Premier League, the Bundesliga, but also, you know, there are lower leagues to think about. The fact, you know, obviously in England, thousands going to League One, Two, and even down into the fifty. Mm. I mean, there's been some other other developments, other appointments. I mean, Nasser Al Khalifa moving into quite a senior position as well last week. Which, what kind of dimensions does that add to um, to all of this? Yeah, that raised uh, some concern at La Liga. Um, I heard from uh, Javier Tebas, who 
was critical of that within a day of uh, the ECA putting um, Al Khalifa forward to be, uh, become a UEFA executive member. And there's two strands really to that. One is his role within being sports, and they're a big purchaser of uh, TV rights from UEFA. So he's now sort of sitting around the UEFA Exco. So it would be questions over whether or not he leaves the room effectively when there are discussions of that. There's also financial fair play because of his role as head of um, PSG and the fact that uh, PSG obviously in the midst of um, FFP investigations at, U- at UEFA. So, uh, you know, there's no sense he's, the executive committee is involved in that process in terms of disciplinary because that's a separate process UEFA insists. But obviously, Khalifa, Khalifa gets to shape the rules of FFP in the future. And Sheffrin, in his uh, speech after being re-elected last week, said he you know, plans to revisit FFP and where the rules go forward uh, into the, sort of the next chapter. Let's let's look back at the global picture, at the FIFA picture. 2018 was a good year for FIFA insofar as the World Cup was was successfully uh, executed. And uh, Infantino's getting his award from Putin in recognition of that. <laughs> well, that's that's kind of a conversation for another day, I guess. The, the, the whole, um, you know, the, the Russian government uh, aspect of all of that. But, you know, the, the failure to or the delay to to setting up these uh, Club World Cup plans. It, it, has he has he added any pressure on himself? The fact that he's he seems to be sticking quite steadfastly to this idea that, that this is the future of, of FIFA, is this 25 billion deal to expand the Club World Cup and kind of revamp the, uh, the competition landscape. I mean, one of the big surprises, the fact he was... Infantino pushing these plans right ahead of the World Cup when there's almost it's the biggest challenge every four years for FIFA logistically and organisationally and he, he added needlessly a disruption to that and he's you know tried to force his council members to push them through before the World Cup the resistance uh, was there and he eventually had to drop them and he's been sort of on a problematic area since then trying to uh, win support particularly from within Europe and uh, you know, it's probably taken away some of the uh, the shine of the success of the World Cup, the fact he's had this sort of repeated setbacks over the 25 billion competitions. And probably one of Infantino's flaws in the whole process was mixing the competition formats and the financing, because mm. many would agree the Club World Cup doesn't really work as it is at the moment, every December uh, with seven teams, little regarded, little commercial appeal. So if he'd sort of stripped out the debate and said, look, do we need a better Club World Cup? It would have at least set in process the um, the council members to agree with the theory that change is needed. The problem is he immediately said we need to change it, and here's 25 billion. I need you to accept within a few weeks this deal, and uh, you know clearly that did not go down well, particularly as it was being ambushed on many members. Yeah, I mean, do you get the sense? Do you get the sense that there is an appetite for this competition that he's going to be able to to push that through? Is it going to be like a case of leaning quite heavily on um, on the promise of that money? Yeah, I mean, one of the things he needs to show is why the money is needed, first of all, and where it's exactly coming from. And Infantino has really sort of not used the opportunities had to actually sell the idea. Again, at the UEFA Congress last week, he didn't use his speech to sort of update members on what's happening. He didn't, at the FIFA Congress last year, use his big platform to sort of um, tell the members and the world his grand vision. So it's all looked quite furtive at times, the fact he hasn't 
um, confidently presented uh, his uh, plans in that way. I mean, I've just been down at Westminster uh, to hear a speech from the new sports minister and, you know, she presented parts of her vision in her first major speech. We don't hear that often from Infantino. Um, it's, it's normally a lot of sort of uh, sometimes empty rhetoric when he is delivering speeches. So I think that's the thing that would actually help to instill more confidence in the plans if he actually was more confident in presenting them. Uh, and again, it comes into this his battle with the clubs because the clubs in some ways don't want a bigger club World Cup. Uh, UEFA don't want it because they know there's a reliance on UEFA members to make it a success. So effectively, it's just a, a miniature Champions League involving the best of the best, but it's been run by FIFA. Mm. What are we going to find out over the course of the next few months now that we've got these two kind of leading figures in situ for the time being? What are the next stages in, in all of this? Well, obviously, we get Infantino's re-election in June on the eve of the Women's World Cup, and it'd be interesting to see how uh, UEFA, particularly Sheffrin and Infantino, work together to try to find um, a point where they can actually agree on things and to actually um, provide some unity uh, in terms of uh, the future of football and to actually sell the ideas uh, to fans. I mean, obviously, the Women's World Cup is, is the big thing for FIFA this year in the sense of not only the opportunity just to see where the growth of the women's game is, particularly in a in a, in a time zone that's uh, appealing to a lot of the world, um, but also in terms of um, setting forward where FIFA goes in the next four years. We'll also start to see bids for future tournaments uh, emerge as well as the uh, Battle of 2030 uh, hops up between Europe and South America. All right, plenty to look out for. We'll be looking out for you, Rob, at the end of this month at the SJAs. Best of luck with that. Thanks a lot. It was good to speak to you. <laughs> uh, good to speak to you. Right, that'll do it for another Sports Pro podcast. Thank you to Rob Harris for joining us with his thoughts on uh, the situation of FIFA and UEFA. Thank you, Mike. Cheers, Owen. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening. Obviously, more and more of you listening every week from what we can tell, which is lovely. Um, do feel free to let other people know about the podcast, to like, to subscribe, to review. And yeah, hopefully we can spread the word. But uh, we'll be back with you next week. Bye-bye.